This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mangan. And I'm Luke Levitz-Meblé. And our topic this week is... Uh, our topic starts with a correction because last week, last uh, episode, I did say that I was not supposed to talk about Marzipan and SwiftUI and all of those topics, but guess what? I am wrong. So tonight, we will be talking about the future of Apple platform post WWDC 2019, aka this is our big episode about the new announcement of DubDub. It also means I don't have to keep my mouth shut again with my that hot takes. That is true. That is true. You'll see also why uh, it fits greatly this week to do because I've been doing a lot of splunking uh, with SwiftUI. So that's nice. Cool. Uh, but first, I have some follow-up. Of course you have some follow-up. Yeah, so I'm going to try to blitz through this because this is a big episode. Uh, first of all, thank you to Chuck Schneider for some nice words on how thorough my look at feature flags was. Uh, real appreciated. Uh, next up, there were... Four tweets from a friend of the show, David Ashby, commenting on various aspects of what we said on that episode. Uh, David used to work as a sysadmin at various New York City startups, so he is probably more qualified than I am to actually talk about these things. Um, I'm not too interested in breaking down all of those tweets. You can go read them yourself because, again, I'm trying to keep this short. Uh, but one very interesting tidbit was that release branches are apparently uh, useful for patching in QA fixes before merging changes into master and develop, which is a neat um, aspect that I hadn't considered. And more or less the overarching theme out of the tweets that David made was that... Um, I know the situations I discussed on the last episode and in my replies to David can be viewed from the outside as suboptimal. And I'm very aware of that because I live them day to day. So I'm acutely aware of what the issues are with our day to day workflows. So like I'm our largest critic. Um, and it's nice to see everybody's opinions on our thing, but I think like I, I'm uniquely qualified to assess like what our situation is. And. There are three main things that keep us at our company from adhering to the best practices uh, the industry uses. So the first is the advantages that the best solution offers are generally, well, no, not generally, uh, are sometimes not necessarily what we're looking for, or it's giving us something that we don't feel is worth the cost, whether it's a time cost or complexity for during development uh, to us. Um, so this is pretty standard stuff. Uh, the next thing is lack of bandwidth. Uh, the company I'm at right now has eight people. My old department at the insurance company had four people. And anytime we spend doing extra things that we aren't doing already, I, I know this is going to sound wrong because I also disagree with this wording, but I also feel it when I have to do it. It feels like lost efficiency because we're spending time doing things that we weren't doing before to achieve the same results. And that lost efficiency is only going to be paid back over time. It's an investment for the future, but it's a hard sell to management when you have to say, we're going to invest more time up front to save time in the future if you don't have like figures or anything to actually prove that you're going to regain that productivity later. Um, and a good example of that is uh, unit tests. Um, we don't have test suites for 99% of our projects. There is one test suite in all of our projects. I wrote it last year because I was working on something so ridiculously complex that I would even, I was even willing to do it on my own time to write the entire test suite because I wanted that test suite for myself and I didn't actually care. And basically the only reason I could sort of like get it past my boss was I showed him the stack of papers with all of the rules that the system was supposed to respect. And I told him, 
this system of rules can be validated in under a second by the computer, and it takes us five hours to do it by hand. Uh, and that, like, registered. But if you don't have those kinds of figures, sometimes it's hard to justify to management. Uh, and the third thing that keeps us from adhering to the best practices is institutional friction, whether it's um, there's only so, so much change that the team can handle at a time. Uh, we still have people who are getting used to uh, branches in Git. So I can't just come along and say, oh, by the way, you have to like write unit tests for everything all of a sudden when they haven't yet adjusted to the previous change. Um, and unit tests is just the example there. It's not actually something we're considering for the short term. Or it could also be someone higher up the org chart needs to change their behavior in a way that they refuse to for the change to actually be viable. Um, this has happened a couple of times. So like all of this DevOps stuff is fundamentally an optimization problem with a bunch of variables. And these variables are going to change from company to company. I love reading everyone's opinions about them. And I love it when people think that they confidently have the one size fits all solution to those problems. But as the more I delve into it, like the more I doubt that there is a one size fits all thing and we're going to have to agree to disagree on certain things. Um, but David, you're a very nice guy. I don't mean to say like all of your suggestions are crap. I just mean that given the constraints I have given to me, there's only so much I can do. And unfortunately, I can't apply all of them. After you sent me the David's tweet, uh, I was like, you know what, I'm kind of on David's camp for this, but now that you explain even more, you know, you give even more excuses about not doing some of that stuff, I'm like, mm, you know what, David is kind of right here, but I know we don't want that to stay for too long, but uh, I felt that a lot of stuff you just said, I'm like cringing on my side of the microphone. So that was uh, interesting. Yeah, but at the same time, like, I'm fully aware of these issues as well. <laughs> like, That's good. At least if you're fully aware, I, I, I think, first of all, um, your last point of saying like not overwhelm people with changes is a great f comment. Like if you want to do more changes, you should make sure that your teammates are, uh, accustomed to the new way of working before throwing them under, not the throwing them under the bus, but like throwing them new things that will, uh, make, not make their life harder, but like change their world. Uh, like you, uh, if we use your example of unit tests, they might not see the benefit until they're like, Oh, I'm thinking about new India and I forgot a case and now I realized my code doesn't support this case either and it's not because you do TDD just because you're thinking differently a bit about your code while you try tests because you make sure do I validate for A do I validate for B do I validate for C oh I forgot to validate for D oops and then you write a unit test and you write the code and voila definitely but yes I'm doing the best I can within the constraints that I am given and we're making progress. We're just not making progress as quickly as I would like. And I am the first to admit it. <laughs> uh, last, last comment, last, last, last comment. I would say about your management thing. Sometimes some white lies always work for this, but I didn't say that. Even if it's going to be recorded and published on the internet, I didn't say that. Nobody at work listens to this. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, next up, I have some follow-up for episode 111 on the Ginza versus Shibuya schools of design. Uh, as you may have heard in the past week, Johnny Ive has left Apple. What? 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 what, what, what? Johnny Ive left Apple? I didn't know about this. Mm, okay. Well, I'm not going to spend 15 minutes apologizing for not having an opinion about the Johnny Ive thing, but what I do want to do is recommend an episode of the talk show with Ben Thompson talking about Johnny Ive's departure from Apple because they sort of actually get to the core of maybe why 
Johnny was interested in uh, moving towards a more Ginza and a more timeless design uh, language for Apple. So definitely go check that out. It is a great episode. And while you're at it, uh, this week's ATP is also very good if you want some more high-level analysis of the situation. You're making a good point about your Shibuya Ginza episode. I, I listened to the uh, the talk show episode, and now, because we're talking, talking a lot about the timeless designs, I forgot that that's, that was the main topic you had when we did that episode. Uh, yeah. Wow. I'm even more enlightened and happy that I listened to that episode yesterday. Mm-hmm. And last element of follow-up is not tied to a specific episode, but we have talked numerous times about the Game Has Done Quick uh, marathon here on the show in the past. That is a, a Twitch stream that lasts about a week where they raise money for various charities while people speedrun various video games. And I think since I come from a jailbreak background and Nukadivya also kind of comes from a jailbreak background, um, there was some really cool hacking stuff at SGDQ this year that I really want to showcase here. Um, if you can go watch the Super Mario World Kaizo Blind Race, uh, it is a showcase of what's possible with modern ROM hacking of the Super Mario World engine. And there are some hacks as significant to Super Mario World today as much as they were big, as there were big significant jailbreak hacks in the golden age of jailbreaking. Uh, truly like, insane stuff that you go like how is this even possible that they have managed to patch into super mario world so i'll put a link in the show notes go watch it it's about an hour long it's seven levels but each level has crazy shit patched into the game specifically for that level and i don't want to spoil any of it go watch it it's insane it's great but i I won't take back your your comment about me kind of coming from jailbreak but that's okay (laughs) i I think i like to note that at this point i think i've done more ios development that you've done jailbreaking time how long have you worked in ios uh nearly six years at this point yeah i, I did about six years so yeah we're good and uh, no, in november will be six years so i'm about uh, five months and eight uh, five years and eight months at this point so but let's just say that jailbreaking has been a more significant part of my career than it has been in yours that's a good comeback i like this one better yeah <laughs> is that it for follow-up yes it is let's move on to the main topic good so like i said in the opening of the show tonight we will be discussing the new stuff that is happening with apple's platforms and that happened in wwc if you recall when we did our episode about wwc two episodes ago so episode 114 we did declare that we wouldn't uh, talk about any sessions from uh, Project Catalyst or Marzipan, as it has been known for the last year, and some of the Swift UI stuff. So before I start, because I want to get that out of the way, uh, in the show notes, I will put at least three sessions that are regarding the uh, iPad apps on the Mac or Project Catalyst. And if you go on the developer uh, website, uh, you can also find a lot of Swift UI stuff, which will also be in the show notes. So I've decided tonight that the episode will be split in two parts. The first part, I want to kind of look about my limited but like just general expense of what i've looked about project catalyst uh what i looked about swift ui what i kind of think about those at technical solutions and then after we'll transform into a more like kind of uh like kind of a thinking like a, more of our opinion based approach uh to that subject the shouting uh, match of the podcast uh, oh yes uh, yeah i think we have to 
do a counter reset where uh, we need to say a number of episodes where Yannick didn't complain. I think it's coming back to zero tonight. But you did say uh, offline that I might be surprised. Maybe. So, um, I do want to point out I will, during editing, this is also a note for myself, I will put a chapter <laughs> marker for if you just want to jump straight to the editorial jumping match because I think some people are not going to care about the developer stuff. True, true. But I, I feel that if... So I want to start with Swift UI first because I think te even technically we'll talk about its uh, effect on uh, the f the future development of application on Apple platform in the coming years. But as a whole, let's start with this one first because I feel that this one is less controver controversial. Swift UI itself is a new UI framework, of course, as its name suggests, to build application on all the plat the Apple platforms. Um, which means that on currently on each platform, so let's say you have iOS, you have watchOS, you have tvOS, you have the Mac, uh, you you don't have HomePod, but let's say that HomePod also counts. Uh, you for each of these devices, there's kind of a different way to code apps, more or less, especially the UI part. So of course, uh, our fans at our Mac diehards will remember our beloved app kit, which has been around for what, 30 years, 20 years at this point, 25 years. Like it's, it's closer to 30. Yeah. 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 It's about, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's getting old. Like, it's like 85. Yeah. Yeah. It's getting old as we are, Nick. I'm just saying that, but, uh, it's, it's older than we are. <laughs> yes, it is older, but still, uh, uh, my point was to say that that's, first of all, that platform was, uh, the main first one. Of course, it came from the Mac. It is still the, uh, Apple recommended way of developing Mac apps. Of course, there's different platform, different like, third party tools you could use, but AppKit is the provided one by Apple to do Mac UI. Uh, around like a year, like two or three years before the Apple launch, of course, Apple took their expertise on AppKit and then built the UIKit, which is also the framework to build uh, iOS apps. And uh, throughout the years, evolved it to kind of make it work on TV. They kind of uh, make it, yeah, they mainly make it work for TV and of course adapted it for iPads too. Uh, but in general, the, for those two, three devices, it is more or less the same uh framework uh once they launched the i uh, the app uh, the watch apps uh that's where they introduce watch kit and watch kit it is kind of a different uh way of building apps but still kind of a, in this i would say it's the same philosophy of ui kit it is as different limitation because of the initial limitation of the watch um like for example processes used to run on the phone and was sending the view changes through Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and it was all slow and then it got moved to in to the processor in uh, the watch and all of those limitations that you may have heard a lot uh, in the initial years of Apple Watch development. But it, at its core, it is reminiscing of what UIKit is. Um, and it's kind of built, like I said, with the same philosophy. So the name, the classes, the controls that you see on screen, they kind of look uh, they also, they a, look like UIKit elements. Also, they are coded in a way that are like UIKit elements. It reminds me a lot of like iPhone OS 2 UIKit. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I have a book. I, I think, no, it 
for a while it was at the office, so at work on my desk, and I was showing it around with people. And also, I have a book for uh, iPhone OS two development and iPhone OS three development. And like we were looking for example, the best example I can be used. Like I remember the day where you were using UI table view cell dot like text color or like directly properties that right now on on UI labels that in iPhone OS 2 they were just directly on the UI table view cell and I was like see that's how we used to do UI table view cell that's how like putting a lot of views in UI table cell doesn't scroll at 60 XPS too so the good old of, days yes lots of fond memories and also it's funny because sometimes uh like people are like yes but you've just been like writing apps for the last six years like, yes I did a lot more before that, but not professionally. So that, that's uh, that's always a good conversation starter when people see those old books. Used to see those old books on my desk. Can you imagine when we used to override direct on every table view cell to draw stuff at 60 FPS? Those were the days. From what I heard, in theory, you still kind of need to do that on the Mac. Not for 60 FPS, <laughs> but just to draw stuff. Yes, but that's because the Mac is a dead platform. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I told you, you need to keep those comments for part two, not part one. But yeah, so if we come back about the platform, so in all of these frameworks, all of these UI frameworks has something in common. And it is that they are kind of, they are imperative framework. And what people mean by that is, let's say you want a view. You say, okay, I instantialize a view. So it's now in memory. And I want to change its color. So I can say like view dot background color. And I, like I change and I set all of those properties really manually. And if I want to compose those views, I say I want to have a view inside of the other one. I would need to manually say, okay, here's the parent view. Please take this child view and put it inside. So it's really like, like, a, like the name suggests, you really need to do this and that and that and that and that and that to have a UI in the end. Where now SwiftUI comes in is it is, it's a declarative UI framework. And what they mean by that is you would easily declare all your view hierarchy in a concise text form. Um, if you have uh, watched a bit some of the videos or just like uh, went around the developer uh, Apple website, you would see some quick example of just like declaring uh, a list of elements. For example, you would use their list constructor. So it's an object that you create that is called a list and then you pass in a function that inside the function it will create other views and in the end you'll end up with a couple lines of codes and it will completely write down your UI and the way you would read it will more or less show it on screen directly. So you don't need to jump to those oops where you need to say like, okay, I need to declare view A, then I need to create view B, and then I need to insert view A into view B. The way that your code is laid out as text kind of becomes also this layout mechanism and that's where the power of declarative frameworks comes in uh if you've been on the web and been doing web development for years hello uh, yeah like yannick for example uh i f from what i've been told and i'm sorry yannick i'm sure you can correct me but from what i've been told like a declarative ui framework has kind of became slowly but surely the norm in let, let's say in the last two or three years Mainly with the coming of React from Facebook. Yeah, I'd say like in the last three to four years, people have been gravitating towards that for their newer projects. Um, mostly towards React. I mean, Angular 2 sort of 
Well, I say Angular 2, but that's whatever the number Angular is right now. Ever since <laughs> Angular 2, they sort of piggybacked on like what was good about React and sort of made that fit into the Angular thing. So it's like a more enterprise version of React in a way. Um, mm-hmm. And there are a bunch of other frameworks. Like we use Riot at work for a few projects, um, which is fundamentally the same idea. Yeah, and one of the common discussion I had with some web developer colleagues since WDBC is they're like, oh, what's new? And then we talk about Sufjar and we kind of explain like, oh, so it's kind of React, but built by Apple for native app. And they're like, oh my fucking God, I'm sure you'll like it. And in general, the answer to that question that is common is of course. Uh, but you'll, we'll see in a bit where it might still be shaky. Of course, we're in beta, so that's okay. And I'll be able to tell you how it compares to the website of things where it, like, everything still kind of seems shaky sometimes <laughs> depends yeah yeah yeah. but um so yeah so apple introduced that and one of no the main aspect of that new framework is that once you learn it you can write apps for ios tvos watch os the mac and the your knowledge of that said framework doesn't change because it is the same UI framework. It is a framework that does a lot for you and that can do this translation. It's like, okay, this kind of declarative, you have a list of items that contains a label plus an image view. Like those can be easily transformed and it is easily adapted by the framework to work on the watch, to work on the phone, to work on iPad and to work on the Mac. One of the clear point that Apple said, though, is that Swift UI is not a cross-platform UI tool, meaning that, yes, it works on all of Apple's platform, but it doesn't mean that you can use it to build one app that runs everywhere. And I think that's where there's a clear line between Swift UI and what we'll be talking about, Project Cadre slash Marzipan. Because related to that, as of beta 3, there is a known issue in Xcode 11 saying that Xcode 11 does not support working with Swift UI in an iPad app brought to the Mac. So it's really a clear distinction here. It's like even stuff that supports Catalyst. So let's kind of get into what this Catalyst is, but, uh, even stuff that could help cross platform code bases. That's not really the main goal of Swift UI. What we've learned since its announcement to that is that it was a way to bring native UI frameworks to the watch because uh, watch or uh, watch kit, excuse me, is kind of a yes. I said it was kind of physically uh, like it was close to UI kit, but it was always an indirection, a layer of indirection because you were never interacting with the real controls that were shown on screen compared to app kit or UI kit because of that constraint of having the watch and the phone be talk that talk to each other between Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. So Swift UI, when what we learned since its introduction at WC is that it was first built as a new UI framework that natively helps you build watch app. And it was so good, according to Apple engineers, that they wanted it on all platform and that's where the Swift UI team evolved their project into what is what Swift UI has been announced from a month ago. So if I didn't lose you too much already, um, 
I want to go a bit deeper on Sophia because uh, one of the first things that Apple did, they really want to drive adoption of it. And Apple, for a rare occasion, built a lot of tutorial uh, for people to just go through them. They're a good introduction, I feel, to SwiftUI because it's really built step by step. So I the tutorial they built, I felt that they came from some of the best sources I go to learn about new ways of building iOS apps or learning about frameworks like places like updatedc.io, Ray Wonderlic, um, you name it, like those places that you may already know. It feels that Apple is like at that level and they want to compete with those people to bring Swift UI content uh, to the wall. And it's good because like even then after a month after Apple, after WWDC, some of those places that I just named drops are already building contents. Like I know uh, we are subscribed to talk uh, to the Swift talk uh, video series from updatedc.io. And they already have the last three weeks of videos was video about Swift UI. So as an iOS developer, it is really nice that it, it really feels invigorating that Apple is building something new for that. And it feels it's, it, it not only feels something new, but it's also something new that you can easily see the benefits in your day to day life. Whether those benefits are I, yes, th- whether those benefits are real or not yet, because maybe of bugs or maybe some limitation of version one of it, it is so drastic as a change of how to build UI and how to build application that for people that have been building iOS app for years, th- it was like a clear, like, you see the difference, you see how it can save you so much time and you want it since yesterday, literally. So some of the elevation that kind of like puts some cold water on those feeling is that right now, of course, since it's new and we're only at beta three, there's a lot of stuff that is not great. Uh, a lot of people that are running through the tutorials or just experimenting with it did mention, and I've seen that while running through the tutorials, like the error message when you make a mistake. So it's easy when you like, w- when you write your code, let's say we want to write like a not a, a UI that contains three texts. So it's a three line text, but it's three things different. So what we will build here is we will build a vertical stack. And there's an object called vStack to build that will do a stack of views one on top of the each other. And then we will put three text elements, let's say text A, text B, and text C. Uh, let's say we forgot to put the text like uh, in, co- in quotes for example, in one of these. And then you will get a weird error message saying like, oh, I'm not sure like what's the return value of your method. Whereas like if you just forgot quotes in a text, it was like, that's not a string, right? Uh, in some, like in normal Swift code. Uh, so you feel that, yes, like it is nice, but when you do a, when you do a dumb mistake, the tools are not here that, not here that yet to help you like correct your kind of, dumb mistake and make sure that like the clear message like oh you didn't you don't want the tool to tell you oh you did a dumb mistake but as time you want to tell you like here's your dumb mistake that you did you forgot to put your string into quotes for example yeah it's like the tools are treating it like it's any other swift code which it is it's just that like the tooling could be better to actually give you better messages in context and right now i'm not too worried because i know that this is a type of stuff that improved. Like I remember around the Swift two days, even a Swift one, but 
since I started with Swift 2, like the, some of the errors were not great. And I feel that it's just because we're in beta 3 right now that the Swift UI people learn from the whole Swift team and they will fix them for sure. Yeah, and the advances in tooling since like Objective-C 2.0 have been like huge at Apple. Yes. Where error messages actually mean things now, whereas they didn't necessarily in the past when we were not even on an LLVM and we were running like on GCC stuff. Uh, so it's really nice to see the tooling being improved very quickly. And I hope they'll do the same for Swift UI because it really deserves it. Totally. Like the example I gave you about the, the quotes, I think one, one day I was doing the, the tutorial, I think two days ago, and I forgot to close my string. I was typing too fast and I did a typo and I didn't, I didn't do a close quote. Uh, so, uh, it was complaining like three lines above saying that this view doesn't know what should return or what's <laughs> its return time. Like, and then, and that, that's why it's a bit frustrating because like you can see like, oh, I like, you you realize quickly after rereading the code but you still need like you have the cognitive load that you need to understand okay i understand that the error message is not clear so it might not be where it is complaining at that line that i have an issue so now you need to reload read your code and say oh yeah okay i understand why why it's complaining you put the end quote and then voila it works and i don't know if apple is planning to update the swift playgrounds app on ios to eventually support ui but if they do that's the kind of thing that you would expect them to do for those users because they tend to be more in educational contexts where they're learning programming for the first time and having a meaningless error message is not going to help them at all. Yeah, you're bringing something good. I've seen uh, something in the release notes. I'm just trying to quickly find in the release notes because there was something about... Uh, yes, here, uh, they're not something about Swift, uh, like the Swift playground apps on iOS, but it's funny right now they do say that in Xcode's playgrounds, Swift UI, like uh, Swift UI live views and inset results are not supported in playgrounds in beta 11. And they're like, say, not supported. They don't say yet, but they just say they aren't supported in beta, Xcode beta. So I hope that it's something they might fix on Xcode first. And then later on, we also see that on uh, Swift Playground on iOS. But to a certain degree, it doesn't seem like it's as urgent to have it working in Xcode because, like, I mean, yeah, like, you want it to work in Playgrounds, ideally, but you already have the live preview with an Xcode, whereas on iPad, if you're trying to showcase your new Swift UI framework, like, you don't have a choice but to actually make it work. Otherwise, you're stuck doing UIKit in Swift Playgrounds. True, true, true. Uh, the main reason why I would see it's nice, uh, in playgrounds itself is because, like, playgrounds are already a great tool to just do quick prototyping, quick, like, kind of, they are a good tool to build a draft of an idea. Like, you have an idea, you want to get, like, all of the code out of your brain, more or less. I think they are, they are an amazing tool for that, just to kind of give you something that half work and then maybe, like, a couple, like, a couple hundred lines at most. Uh, and it feels to me that Swift UI is also a good UI tool for a good UI framework for that. It is yeah. super easy to say like, Oh, I want a view that is a list. Then it's a vertical, uh, it's a horizontal list. It has like all of this data that comes from this API and, and like the cell, the, the each row is like containing like three labels plus an image. And then it's super easy to prototype a UI quickly and then see the results quickly. Then 
that I would like to see that also works in Playground, both on the iPad and in Xcode, to mix with those uh, with those two concepts because Playground is good for like kind of having quick dip, like quick get the idea out of the brain code wise, and if you modify that plus having a UI on top of that, it's even more great. Definitely. Even if error messages, like even that was my first gripe when I was uh, learning Swift UI with the tutorials. I'm also uh, in the coming weeks, I'll uh, run through some other tutorials. So I run through some of uh, most, uh, no, excuse me. I run through all of the Apple's tutorial and they are quite great until you press run, (laughs) 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 which uh, some of my colleagues that attended WGC, they did then during that week and we, went to the lab and said, hey, this doesn't work or that doesn't work. Um, but I realized quite quickly that um, sometimes it, it will compile everything. It's just that it won't work. Or in one example, it crashes. So uh, the tutorial is to you for you to build an app called Landmark. So it's a, it's a Landmarks app. Like, like it's like the real like Landmark thingy. So for example, they say like Dead Valley. I don't forget the name of the places they put in, but I think they've used that app as like a demo app at WWDC for like two or three years. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, I remember it from last year. And what they and make you build in the end kind of reminds me of your uh, for you tabs in either Photos app or even uh, I'm looking quickly at uh, music, but yeah, music too. Like it's kind of a it's a it's a list that scrolls down, but also even apps the App Store app too, where it's a it's a long list that scrolls vertically, and then some of the cells they might scroll vertically. If uh, horizontal, my goodness, I'll restart that because that was really not clear. You have a master list that scrolls vertically that contains all the content you want to show, and you have like each section that are rows, and those scroll horizontally. So uh, they, they, I think the first one is like the feature landmarks, and then they have each row are a category and. And of course, for each category, they want you to show the landmark so you can scroll horizontally with the landmarks. Uh, they were trying to, so I did the demo and I follow the code and it crashes when I play it. So I'm like, it kind of does a white UI in, uh, in Xcode itself when you lose the, you, uh, the Xcode preview feature where it is that you, uh, Xcode will show you your uh, Swift UI views in Xcode itself without running without quote-unquote compiling your code and running into the simulator, even if it's kind of doing that for you already. But it's without really running through your whole app and go to like tap here, tap there, tap there, and then go to the screen where you build that sc- uh, that new view. So you can do that now in line in the code. That's an amazing feature that is uh, great with SwiftUI and the new Xcode. But all of this to say is you can also play live there with those view. And I was clicking to Melee and it was going to widescreen. So I'm like, okay, then let's run from the sim. You run from the sim and then crash. I'm like, okay. Apple is kind enough for you to kind of give you the solution because their tutorial is either you follow them. Uh, so each tutorial have resources. And in the resources, you have the starting point project and you have the complete project. So you can take the starting point and then follow the tutorial or you can just go look at the solution and then just like wander around in the solution and play with it yourself. So download the solution, run it, still the same issue. Like at least my code was correct because Apple's solution is also having those issues. So I feel I will revisit Apple's tutorial and even in Xcode uh, 11 beta 3, there's a section in the release notes that is about the Swift UI tutorial and say, oh, if that doesn't work, do this. If that doesn't work, do that. It's two elements, but I hope that in the future betas, this will improve. 
now even if i start with some like small like an, eh, some gotchas um uh, one of the main things that is uh, kind of that one of the main thing that is right now a big blocker is of course Swift UI is an iOS 13 functionality. So you need to have at you could have some functionality that are like safeguarded, meaning that your app can be back deployed to iOS 10, iOS 11, iOS 12, but some feature in your app are only available to iOS 13 users. So there's some hints that maybe that could work. But in general, Apple strongly suggests that you move to app your app to require iOS 13 so you can use all of those great tools. Uh, and for uh, for an app like the one I worked on, uh, requiring iOS 13 today is not feasible. So um, so that's why it's kind of a cold shower on some of those like, oh my God, everything is nice, everything is new. And then you just uh, learn about some of the details. Um, but I feel that it is bringing really great conversation about declarative framework, UI framework on Apple's platform. Now you see where Apple is going. Um, and I feel that some of them that were already present because there was a, some amount of third party uh, framework that was trying to wrap around a UI kit in a declarative manner. Uh, maybe they would adjust and then bring you some functionality or like an API that closely resembles Swift UI, but is is on top of UIKit and supports old version. And now if it runs on iOS 13, it will work with SwiftUI. So it will be for you, for your current app, a good transition plan. Rely on some third party code. Yes, I know some we've discussed in great details that Yannick and I are not the best proponent of relying on too much third party code. But I feel that here the trade off is good because it brings you to the to a future where you should be because that's where Apple is pushing its platform to go in that direction. So if a third party a library for the next maybe year or two can help you make that transition, I think that's a fair trade-off to do. I just got a terrible great idea. Uh-oh. Yes. I just want to remind people that some of my greatest hits ideas were like creating a loader for NS dictionary that lets you import registry restore files from Windows. Oh, so I have very many terrible ideas. Yes. Many terrible ideas. So here's my great pitch. Investors, please get in touch. Swift UI cross compiler to React Native. It's funny that you say oh, that. Oh no. Don't tell me it exists for real. <laughs> Kinda. Oh, fuck. So, uh, why do people listen to my terrible ideas? <laughs> Hear me out here. So, uh, if I go back to, so, yeah, if I go back to some of the technical details of how Swift works, how uh, Swift UI works. So, yes, like I said, they built a declarative framework. They also built, uh, oh no, now I want to say the DSL, but I forgot what they mean by that. Domain specific language. Yes, thank you. That's that. <laughs> yes. So, they added new, fu- first of all, for Swift UI to be that good, they added so much in Swift 5.0 that was released last spring and Swift 5.1 that is going to be released this fall that it now makes the language itself be more, they be more flexible to some of the requirements that a declarative uh, UI framework could do. So, uh, related to that too is that, uh, Swift UI is Based on the DSL, the domain specific language, that is the, all of those elements say that, oh, you have a list element and then you have a text element. What people start to realize is because Swift UI is built in Swift, uh, you could kind of rebuild it yourself 
and have a different output. So now SwiftUI has its own, you use the declarative language that then gets transformed into some kind of layers and views. Some people started to dig around and realize it's kind of UI view based, but not really and all of that stuff. I don't want to go into much detail, but all this says you, your declarative gets transformed into some kind of views and layers on screen. People start to realize that, hey, what if I write, I write my own DSL that can be transformed into HTML, for example. So now I have a, I have a type safe HTML renderer. So if I make a mistake, I know that, oh, for example, like I didn't forget to put my end tag in my HTML or I didn't do like a, let's say a paragraph. Oh, I'm sure I'll say stupid shit because. Yeah, I was going to point way. out that you don't actually need to close tags in HTML because it's based on SGML, not XML. So I know, but I don't know why people then they want type safety in HTML, but I guess there's a reason why it's good. <laughs> no. So, <laughs> but I've seen good example. I think, uh, it's, uh, uh, John Sundell. Uh, oh my goodness. The, 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 the person yeah, that, that does uh, John Sundell is a real Sundell, person. Yes. I don't know if they're the person you're talking about necessarily. Yes, uh, but... The person behind Swift by Sundell. And I am yes. bad at name, uh, but he, uh, and the Swift community podcast. Yes. And they, on their Twitter account, they demonstrated what I just said. They, for the website itself, uh, their own website, they did build, and I, of course, is correct, it is John uh, Sandel. So they built, uh, this exact DSL that transformed itself from some kind of like resemblance of Swift UI into what they would use to build their website and also they did the wbc by sandel uh, website and they showed example on uh their uh twitter feed so i would i think i will put a note to not forget to put a link about that because that was great uh, really interesting because if you want to ex- implement yannick's crazy idea you could do it i'm not sure but, I'm sure but by seeing some of those examples, I feel that then there will be a lot of usage or different, like, there could be different layers and different, like, kind of conversion that could be done for that. So right now, that's kind of what I wanted to discuss about Swift UI. I feel that it's going to be super interesting. I feel that I'll be discussing it a lot in the next six months or a year for sure. Uh, at work, we're already having a lot of discussion about what do we do with iOS 13 minimum, the, the uh, iOS 13 minimum deployment target and it's bringing a lot of big conversation because some of the iPads are going away with iOS 13 so compatibility issues mm. product wise business wise lots of fun discussion which is more or less to say the developers want the shiny new thing including myself and then my product side is saying yay but we cannot we cannot say no to customers that have old iPads because some of those old iPads were when we started the project five years ago so they might be more popular than we want them to be still five years uh, now in the future uh, compared to where we were five years ago. Hello, iPad Air. You're a beloved fan, but you're uh, still in a great usage. So I feel that a lot of devs already on Twitter, including us, already uh, coming with that realization that it might be not soon or uh but we still try to want to find places where we can experiment innovate do some r&d with it because we do feel that it's going to be a huge time saver uh on our stuff and we also want to know the, the not known issues but the gotchas like after building apps for 
uh, X amount of years, you can start to know the gotchas of your UI framework because no UI framework is perfect. So you kind of get used to, oh, I need to do this small act because there's a bug in UIKit that I've logged like 10,000 feedback assistant bugs now or radars and they're not being fixed. So that's life. So I need to work around them to make sure that my user experience is great. And I feel that we are going back through that with Swift UI. I do want to jump in before we actually go into Catalyst to just sort of give the web dev perspective on this from like what I've kind of learned via FRP view frameworks over the last couple of years that I think kind of is being reflected as worries by Mac developers and iOS developers that are looking at Swift UI today. Um, one thing I've been seeing a lot is fear of lack of customizability in Swift UI. And oh boy. <laughs> That's quite the contrary, but continue. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of people saying like, oh, you can't customize views enough or whatever. And in general, I think the fact that you can host a UIKit view or an AppKit view nullifies a lot of the complaints that people are going to have about this. Like in the worst case, you can just use a legacy view for the time being and get away with it, unless you're trying to make something fully cross-platform, which we'll get to eventually. And Apple expects you to do that, it seems, because it is part of the tutorial to build this landmark app from scratch. The last tutorial, last chapter in the big tutorial, it is about interoperability with UIKit or AppKit, but the example is on iOS. Uh, and I think it is a conscious decision to say, we know that Swift UI version one that is going to be released this September is not to be, it's not going to be great, as great as UIKit, like, like, Maybe control-wise, it might not support everything we used to support. And a good example, the demo is UA, UI page view controller, so like mm, page yeah, scroller. Yeah. They show you how to implement it in Swift or make it Swift UI compatible. And it's not that hard. It's super simple. And they say like, oh, uh, a good example is because this is driven by a data source object or a delegate. They also, excuse me, they also know what to do, like what to tell the developers, like, okay, Here's how you translate those patterns into Swift UI into a way that Swift UI can notify you when it needs to update and then you know what to do. So it's really interesting that last uh, tutorial about interoperability with legacy. Uh, I wouldn't say legacy though. You use legacy UI framework and I feel it is still too early. Uh, yes, Swift UI is the future, maybe some of the present, but it doesn't mean right now like it doesn't mean like, like Objective-C is dead. Same thing with UIKit or AppKit. Right. Um, but the point I wanted to make about customizability, which was not this, uh, was that um, one thing that is extremely concerning for me, but I, I, I have to admit that I have not watched any Swift UI sessions, so I have no idea what's going on on this front, is animations. Because that's part of what made it so weird on the web, is that if you're used to imperative style animations, let's say using jQuery or whatever like that, um, you can't do that at all with uh, view frameworks like React or whatever. You have to do everything in CSS3 animations where, once again, the animations are done in a declarative way. Um, and if you're used to doing animations the old way, it is a huge shift to actually move everything to like describing everything in keyframes when you're used to saying like, just do this starting point, end point, do the work. Um, so I don't know. We're going to have to see 
what is going to be available uh, for animations for developers. I know there's some sort of plumbing there to do custom animations, and there are a lot of prefabricated animations you can just dump in and use those. There's a lot of them, yes. Right, but if you really want to do something custom, like I hope the system is flexible enough. Like CSS3 is very, very flexible. It's not necessarily the most user-friendly thing, which is why a lot of people don't like it, but it definitely can get the job done. So I hope... Apple has something, if not now, in the works to actually like be as robust for custom animations as CSS3 animations are. I'm eager to learn it because, again, uh, building some kind of animation, I know that in the tutorial they're basic because, of course, it's a tutorial, but the way they describe how animation works with Swift UI. Uh, it is quite interesting. I feel that you could build your custom ones. I they, what they've shown in demo is a composition of the default one, um, so you can have like kind of a scaling effect and then uh, like a ease in ease out or like a uh, affecting animating the opacity and so it's quite crazy. Some of the finite details you can say like uh, like this property you don't want to animate but that other mod no not property that that modifier let's say like you want to animate the color change uh from a to b but like let's say the opacity you don't want it to animate you want to be like clack it uh, if it goes from zero to hundred like without animation you can in your view modifier say like this one is animated that one is not in a declarative way um i haven't built Custom animation. I know another resource from I think design.io that I've know some colleagues did. Uh, is that design for? Uh, yeah, I think so. But there's uh yeah, I'm not sure. I have to look. But there was uh there was one. So there's some tutorial about how to build like really fancy animations, uh, and those look super interesting because Apple is quite upfront saying like. Animations are like fully interruptible, fully interactive uh, in Swift UI. And uh, what I've seen go through uh, Twitter from and even some discussion with my colleagues, uh, it seems that uh, they're like, uh, it's not a blank check that they're, they're putting there. Like they, what they said there is more or less real. So I'm eager to see what can be done. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that made the move to FRP much easier on the web than swift ui might be is that the web has had css since like 1998 so there's been a declarative way to actually state visual changes in your application since 1998 and most websites had already adopted it by the time that react came along so that then it became much easier to just plug into that declarative appearance system whereas swift ui has none of that it has to provide all of that and I'm not sure that version one is necessarily going to be mature enough for everything, but luckily there's always that fallback you can go down to at the app kit or UI kit level, which I'm assuming is what Apple wants you to do. But anyway, that's enough for me uh, <laughs> about uh, the flexibility of Swift UI. Let's get talking about Catalyst. Yes, we will. Just quick, uh, quick uh, real time follow up. Uh, it was not design that I was design code that I owe. and uh, they have great tutorial today uh, about. Uh, so if you are build building that and uh one of the person behind it was also uh tweeting a lot about what he was learning and building so uh i will be another link in the show notes but now let's move to project catalyst slash marzipan so all of that started last year and that we discussed in great lens in previous episodes it started last year with moavi when apple said 
we are building a new tool for iOS app developers to bring their iOS app to the Mac. And here's our four examples. And that were the four new apps on Moave, Home, Stocks, News, and Voice Memo. And there was a lot of fanfare about, oh, they don't look like Mac apps and blah, 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 which we'll keep just in a bit. But the idea here is you have one code base that compiles both for iOS phone, iOS iPad, and Mac for different screen sizes. And they said that we will take some time to dog food, dog dog fitting, yes, to play with it internally, let's put it this way, and make sure that what we deliver to third-party developers is something that they want and that makes quite some sense. And this is where we are right now. This year, they did announce that now third-party developers, iOS developers, can take their iPad apps, not their iPhone apps, but first their iPad apps and port them to the Mac with something that they rename Project Catalyst or if you look at the documentation, UIKit for the Mac. And as its like technical name suggests, it is literally a port of UIKit or like enabling UIKit to work on the Mac. I'm so disappointed they didn't go with my name, Coco Touch for Mouse. <laughs> oh my goodness. I forgot you said that, but now, yeah, yeah I remember when you made that. It was such a good there. name. Why didn't they go with it? I don't. Coke. Oh my goodness. Coco Touch for the Mouse. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll ignore that joke and uh, move along. But, uh, yeah, so as its name suggests, Coco Touch for the mouse or UI kit for Mac is a way to bring your iOS app and like bring your current code. So let's say you have a UI views, UI page view controller, you have like UI navigation bars, you have tab bar controller, all of those controls are the part of your kit and bring them to Mac, to the Mac. So Apple touted that as a one click solution, meaning you enable your Mac target and then voila, it works. Uh, of course, it's not the case because you may rely on a lot of third-party code that doesn't work on that yet. Or, 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 of course, every time Apple adds a new platform, they do clean some of their deprecated API, and you may rely on your iOS code may rely on deprecated API that are still available in iOS but not in UIKit for Mac, or like they are available in TVOS but not on UIKit for Mac, for example. A lot of other people, a lot of some more people were experiencing. I think one of the examples was Mark Rahman. He was pretty vocal saying that, Oh, I have a CarPlay app. I have an iPad app. All of this is on the same container. If I want to enable for the Mac, it is somewhat feasible. I think he kind of said yes, no. So it's still unclear, like depending of like some of the feature you want to have your iOS app to support. Uh, a lot of them are not available on the Mac for obvious reasons. Like, for example, you cannot plug your Mac into your car infotainment system. Um, and Apple, in their session, goes through the list of frameworks that are not available that and give you strategies to uh, either if them out, making sure that they, you can, they are not compiled. Uh, this, like, maybe those functionality you have are not compiled when you compile for the Mac. So let's say you have a, uh, you have a somewhat of a, like, I'd say vanilla project, meaning that it doesn't have that much third-party code. So it's a lot of code that you are in control and that you can recompile yourself. In theory, it means that you go click a couple of checkboxes in all of those projects. And in the end, you end up with uh, your iPad app running on the Mac. And by default, technically, it does look like your iPad app from the sim but now it is fully running in a mac window but in a, like in a slightly like 
gray Mac window with all the UI components looks that looks like iOS uh, UI component. Of course, on top of that, Apple added a lot of new APIs to make available API make a Mac feature available through UIKit. So tab bar, that not tab bar, but like the, the real bar with segmented controls that are more quote unquote Mac like. The toolbar that is on top, not at the bottom. Different buttons, controlling the menu, making sure you add your own menu options. Um, even if nobody likes it, like maybe add your buttons in a touch bar. So they brought a lot of APIs to UIKit. And the interesting part is they also kind of brought their equivalents for some of them to iOS itself. Uh, I think one of the good ones is like the typical uh, contextual menus that you have. Like a good example is you right click, you might have some options there. Uh, now Apple have an equivalent on iOS that kind of replaced peak and pop on 3D touch phones. Now it's available. It, this, these contextual menu would be available on all iOS devices. And they also have an equivalent on the Mac. So the general idea with uh, UIKit for Mac is when you check the bus, if from before your iPad app was a good iPad OS citizen or iOS citizen, uh, you would get a lot for free. Then you should focus because like I said, those apps that this app that just works with one checkbox kind of looks like your iPad app in the sim, but not in the sim. Then you should focus your time to learn the Mac HIG and then Take your knowledge of UIKit, use the new UIKit API, and make your app more of a Mac app. And Apple have augmented the documentation into the uh, Apple HIG for both iOS, especially for iOS, iPad app on the Mac, and the Mac itself, to make sure that uh, iOS developers learn the different details of how apps work on the desktop versus how apps work on iPad, even if some of the functionality are similar. Uh, like with iPad OS, iPad got multi-window apps, so like two instances of the same window, like multiple window of the same app running at the same time. Even if you have that, like you don't have the same condition of having the menu at the top where the menu is I think the best way I can describe it is for me, I feel the menus, the, the menu commands are a launch pad. Like you, you want to know if you can do this action, you go in the menu, it's disabled. Then in the current context, you can't do it. You don't have the menu on iOS, hopefully maybe later. Uh, but it, you need to adapt your app. And I think that's that, that point was for some people where they got stuck on the fact that Apple, it was pretty, it was pretty clear on saying, Oh, it's just a one, like, one click deal and it's done. You don't have need to do anything. That's not literally what they said. I, I've, of course, they want to incentivize the one click thing and it's done. But they did do their job to make sure that there's a lot of APIs, additional APIs to make sure that the polished job you do to have a great iOS app, you should be able to do it also on the Mac. And it's not fully rewriting the whole UI that you get a lot for free, but then you could put the the additional time to just do a more, a bit more polishing. And a lot of this additional polishing is also useful with latest iPad functionalities. So it is time well spent in the end. So is, I think it's kind of the point where we start talking about some of the contention issues with the Catalyst, because like to me that, that that's the kind of the developer story of Catalyst is, you know, you like it, go read about Go read the Mac egg. Go read this new list of endpoints. And with the Mac 
interf- human interface guidelines, you should more or less kind of quote unquote know. I'm sure you'll make dumb mistakes. I'm sure I'll make dumb mistakes. I remember the day I was writing Windows apps. Like we were discussing about that with a colleague uh, thing this week. I was like, you know, I really need to like do dumb projects with Catalyst for the main reason that I never really wrote Mac apps. And it's not only Mac apps. It's literally, I never really wrote desktop apps. We did during, like, Yannick and I, we did through our, like, college studies. I did a bit during my university studies. But never in a way where we we were kind of thinking about, like, the user experience. I felt that, personally, uh, all of that, like, thinking about the user experience, talking about the customer of the app, all end up being done on iOS, meaning on either a phone or on the iPad. And now I, can t- I need to rewire my brain. I need to learn uh, and I need to understand like, oh, I love that this Mac app does this. Why is it doing that? Oh, it's because like Apple says that if you put all your con- your commands in your menu actions, then customer, they know they can also all use the help menu to search for a command and see, oh, it is it in this menu. If you attach a shortcut, a keyboard shortcut to it, you see that the menu lights up to tell you where it is located to all this like fine tuning details that makes a great Mac apps a Mac app. You still need to do it. And that I don't think Apple shied away too much from it. Of course, they want to give a clear or an easy developer picture for Catalyst. But if you go through the documentation and you know a bit some of the like PR around the announcement, uh, from the dub dub session itself, even in the dub dub session itself, but more about, I was more talking about the keynote or the state of union. Like, yes, it's nice that you can do one checkbox, but they still, the next slide is always say, but you should learn what is a great user interface on the Mac. And here's the API to help you build that. So I don't want to re-litigate the entire like user interface consistency thing because we sort of did that on the other episode. So mm-hmm. I don't want to repeat myself too much. Uh, there are a couple of things though that you said that I sort of either have issues with or doubts. Um, so w- what I find really funny is everyone is suddenly like super obsessed with the Mac HIG like it was the law all this time when in reality, especially like in the late Steve Jobs era, Apple was the first person to break the HIG every fucking time. Apple is still the first person to, be- to break, the, uh, break the iOS HIG right now. Yeah, I- iOS, sure. Uh, basically, they're doing it on whatever the trendy platform is. Like they're like... We want to be the one to push the platform to the next aesthetic level, and we're going to do crazy shit like the New York Times headlines at the top of the nav controller or whatever, uh, <laughs> and they keep pushing it forward. But on the Mac, it's been a while since we've seen like really that kind of like weird experimentation. Like a, a great example of this, um, Gruber had a talk many years ago. I don't remember which conference. I think it was WebStock, uh, a conference Ooh, about. Okay consistency versus uniformity and the idea is in the system seven days applications were uniform meaning that yes they had a consistent design language but they also looked exactly the same where there was one uh the platinum ui if you were doing an application for os 8 or os 9 and every app looked fundamentally the same like yes there was a panic app but it was using exactly the same buttons and the same background textures as every other app on the platform and really what made a panic app different from like another ftp app was the placement of literally the pixels where you put your buttons and how things were organized on screen not so much the visual identity of the application yeah or the feature set or the the, the quality of the app it doesn't crash it doesn't like 
pull down your whole Mac and stuff like that. Great examples of like Apple doing the consistency thing instead of uniformity is GarageBand. GarageBand looks like a fucking guitar case. Uh, <laughs> it, like it, it doesn't respect the HIG at all, but it behaves in a way that's consistent with uh, Mac controls elsewhere on the system. So you're not confused when you go into GarageBand and don't, uh, and it doesn't look exactly the same because everything behaves the way you would expect it to. Whereas uniformity would mean everything would look like a Mac app with like the same gray, uh, like I, I think in the 10.4 days, we called it the unified toolbar look uh, that sort of evolved over time into what we have today. Everything would look exactly the same and it would be kind of drab and boring. And that's kind of what we saw with the iOS 7 redesign. But I'm that's not going funny there. You mentioned that. No, yeah, I was thinking exactly. But I was like, oh, they all look the same. They don't hmm. have any visual uh, differences. It's weird. It's kind of like Johnny has design language. But anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of funny to see people obsessing about the HIG when, like, for the most part, like, the way Mac apps have evolved over time, like Tweety is a great example of this. Tweety for Mac really pushed what the Mac app UI was like to the point that now there are a bunch of Windows apps that are mimicking Slack that are mimicking the Twitter app that people don't, don't even know. Like the reason the Discord looks the way it looks is because of Tweety for Mac. Like it, it's completely changed how desktop apps looked on the Mac, even though it didn't respect the HIG. It was just trying to get a little bit of iOS, trying to get a little bit of Mac OS and make it feel natural. And it, it just felt right. And that's the thing is it's a thing about feeling right. And the thing that concerns me about Catalyst is now you're having all of these people who mostly only use the Mac because they have to, to develop for iOS, who are thinking about maybe making a Mac version of their app, who don't know shit about what a real Mac app feels like. Do you really think they're going to do the research into and do the research and then actually get it correct on their first try that they're actually making a good Mac app? I have zero confidence in that whatsoever, especially not people who are shipping Electron apps today and that think that is an appropriate thing to be doing because their apps are not consistent with the UI right now at all. So I don't think they're going to do the extra work. They're just going to check the checkbox and ship it because that's pretty much what Electron is. You know what? I feel you. That, I think we're on a consistent point. That I feel that a lot of people will check the check mark and then call it a day. A bit like what people did with the first watch SDK. They built, it, it was less than a check mark, let's be honest. Yeah. But they built something just to be on the watch and then it's on the watch and they realize, oh, nobody's using it. And 18 months later, they delete the app and nobody notices. That too, but also like it's like nobody used it because it was shitty too at the same time. Not only yeah. the SDK, but the app itself. Yeah. So I, I do feel that there's going to be a huge amount of that. And that will take maybe 12, 18, 24 months. We'll see. To go back, uh, before I continue, to go back to your point about the HIG, uh, it's funny they made, no, it's funny that you're surprised that everybody's going back to the Mac HIG and then we all know that everybody is not really following it. I remember two occasions in my past, in the past where a lot of people did that. When iOS SDK got announced, everybody's like, we need to read the HIG and follow the rig by the rule of law, right? Uh, iOS 3 was that. iOS 7 was exactly the same thing. It is a good place to start to maybe minimize what you were describing about, like making sure you, no, uh, it's to a great place to start to make sure that you minimize the amount of mistakes you do in your first iteration because you're correct. 
we will all more or less suck at building great apps, except, and I feel that the only exception to that is people that are re- already writing great app kit apps that for them, there might be like one or two people shops or even indie devs. And they realize that, you know what? Maybe in two, in two years, it's safer. It's better for me to have one code base where I can bring my Mac experience in one code base than to have to build and maintain two code bases. Yeah, or like look at Marco. Marco is one of this like new wave of Apple developers who learn how to develop on iOS. They don't want to learn how to use AppKit or they did for like uh Forecast or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like they reluctantly tried AppKit and then regretted it and then were like fuck this. I'm just going not going to do a Mac app. Uh like they have a very good idea of what a Mac app is because they use the Mac every day. Where I'm really concerned because like the biggest volume we're going to see of these catalyst apps mo- most undoubtedly is going to be from multi-platform apps who are like, oh, well, now it's just a checkbox, so we're going to do that. And that's precisely what I expect them to do. But I have, like, no worries that, like, the Marcos, the Wooji Juices, who are going to be making Ferrite, like, people who are already, like, in the Apple state of mind, like, they get it. They're going to do it right. True. But they're not the majority. But exactly. Don't forget, they're also not the majority on iOS. That's true. But I don't you use would... those other apps. But, but that's exactly that. And that's where... I feel that even if you say that, I think that's kind of a moot argument because even us in our tech bubble, that's where we forget that, first of all, a lot of people are shitty, uh, shipping shitty apps. And you know what? A lot of users are using them because you know what? They do the one thing they wanted to do and it's free, sadly. And there's a lot of like, like business details around a lot of that. But I do feel that the tools are there to, for you to make a great app. And I feel that there are, there are not less roadblocks for you to do so. I, I mean, that's not wrong. It's just for such a long time, the Mac has been sort of like this exclusive club of developers. And I know there are expe- exceptions to this. Like the Electron apps are the biggest exception to this at the moment, but it's felt more like an exclusive club where on average, the quality app level is much higher than any other platform, even maybe iOS, because there's less apps there and the level that you see is much higher on average. But now we're making tools so that like people can crank out like shitty shovelware apps. And is it going to wind up like the Wii? Like the Wii is a game console that was immensely successful. And it has like, aside from Nintendo games, how many third party games on that platform are actually any good? Like, <laughs> I'm still waiting. Yeah, on the Wii U is not because there was no third party. Uh, yeah, that's true. Games, but on the Wii itself, it's been a while. They've kind of redeemed themselves with the Switch, but nah. Yeah, yeah. But that's another episode. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like if Apple is the one enabling the floodgates for shitty apps, it's a feel bad moment because it feels like Apple doesn't value. They should be pushing for higher quality, not lower quality. Hmm. Anyway, that we're we're still hung up on this interface shit, which is not what I want to be talking about. Oh, okay, no, no, and you know what? I, I feel there's a lot of hung up about it. That personally, I feel there are, I understand, but at the same time, if your product is good enough, even if it's not Mac um, shit, I, we're recording with Line. Best example is we're recording <laughs> with Line because it's good. It doesn't look Mac Lite for like two cents but we still use it because we like the product. 
And well, you don't, but I do. <laughs> come on, come on. I, I, throughout the years, okay, you want you really want. That's not going to stand up. The quickly is like I really like the stickers that li- lines have it, and you know what? A lot of feature that line has that it did uh, like help the competition to improve, like iMessage. So that's what I have to say about line for now. Okay. Uh, but the point is this: is like I know Slack is not perfect, and like that's the problem is they have a so good the great tool like the tool itself the, the business case around the tool is so good that I'm kind of sad I really want them to do that uh but yeah that's the life we're in sadly hopefully and my hope my hopeful comment regarding the interface is at least if those people that have an iOS code base if they use it and then improve what they do for the Mac right now to me that would be a win so now let's move to not talking about the uh, interface issues Okay, so I, I have like two big things I want to discuss tonight. So Good. the first is kind of a frustration with how people are covering uh, Catalyst and Swift UI because I feel there's nuance being lost. You talked about this in the tech section, but I'm going to recap it here just in case you skip the technolo- technology chapter. Catalyst is about convertible app development where one code base can morph into the form factor it's running on. Yeah, typical cross-platform. Yes, whereas SwiftUI is about having a consistent set of tools for creating user interfaces across platforms, but it's not for building one app that morphs on the context like Catalyst is. Totally. People already complain. I know we've seen on Twitter like uh, people are sending feedback to Apple saying, hey, this is not available in the Mac, for example, like a navigation. I think they've seen like navigation bar because it's not the equivalent it's i don't I forgot which one or it's the navigation controller that's well, not because there. navigation controllers don't really exist on the mac as they do on ios like yes and that's why they're not in swift ui on the mac uh, when it runs on the mac exactly um the question that needs to be answered though is what's the story of apps for apple platforms going forward this is the thing that apple doesn't really want to seem to comment on and there are like two and a half scenarios here that are possible So the first is, is it convertible apps running atop a common platform? In this case, SwiftUI's existence doesn't mean that Catalyst is deprecated on arrival. You heard a lot about that. You heard Mm. debtor on arrival, deprecated on arrival. Like Everybody was saying that like the first couple days. But Catalyst irons out all of the inconsistencies between uh, available APIs, UI or otherwise, between iOS and the Mac. But you can still use Swift UI within, well, excluding the beta note you said earlier where it yes, doesn't yeah. work. I, f- I feel that they, they said it because they know people want to do it. Like they've said it's going to happen. It's just right now it's not working. Exactly. Right. So in this case, like the debtor on, on arrival thing was just like bullshit. And it's Swift UI's complementary technology for the convertible apps. Second scenario. Is it giving developers a common set of tools that can be used to share bits of UI code across bespoke apps on each platform where it makes sense? Because in this case, you heard a lot of people talking about Catalyst as a transitional technology, but it's a real shitty transitional technology because it accustoms developers to making convertible applications. And if that's not the endpoint, they're going to be really angry when you shut the the switch off in a couple of years and then that approach is no longer viable to have a Mac app. It means that you're going to have like maybe five years of converted Mac apps and then all of those apps are going to disappear overnight unless they've been like written in a sensible way by SwiftUI and enough of it can be converted. Before I get to the 0.5 scenario, 
<laughs> I, I also have like some meta commentary about uh, what sort of happened in the lead up to WWDC, which is there was a narrative around Mac developers. They're so change averse. They don't want to embrace Catalyst. But then SwiftUI was announced and Mac developers were like, oh shit, SwiftUI, that looks dope as hell. I want to adopt SwiftUI. And then like all the people who were complaining about the change averse Mac developers were like, oh no, what do we do now? They're not that change averse after all. Um, and, uh, Padraig from, uh, what's the name of the company that makes Castro? Uh, that's a good question. I was going to say Octocat, but that's the GitHub thing. So I yes. don't know. Uh, it's, it's Octo something. Uh, but they make the fabulous podcast app, Castro. Uh, he had a great tweet, which unfortunately I cannot... Super top. Super top, yes. Nothing to do with Octopus, although they <laughs> love Octopus, which is why it registers. Uh, he had a really great tweet. Unfortunately, I guess he made a controversial tweet today and then renamed his display name to Great Tweet Pedreg and locked his account. <laughs> so I can't read it to you oh, right no. now. Uh, but it was really great, I guarantee. Uh, but... Really, the thing that the Mac developers were averse to was alien-feeling iOS apps on the Mac and cross-platform platform technologies, and not the promise of new UI frameworks. We love you, you, new UI frameworks. In fact, a lot of us have been asking for a new UI framework on the Mac for a really long time. We just don't want it to be used to bring iOS-feeling applications to the Mac. And... I don't know. It just adds more friction between lazy developers releasing minimum effort iOS ports and all of that stuff, which is kind of good. It, it requires more effort out of the developers, but it also guarantees a kind of better application in the endpoint. So if you've been listening to the show for a really long time, you know that Swift UI is specifically what I have been campaigning for for years. Not necessarily the declarative aspect of it, but I've been saying, you need to get the Mac and iOS on a consistent set of tools so that if you know how to develop for one, you know how to develop for the other, but you're not going to make the same app for each one. Now that I've stated my personal opinion, <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I think Apple is going to do. Because it's not clear if they're just being secretive, if they're indecisive, or if they think it's not a one or the other choice. So my theory is that this is how both technologies will turn out within let's say five years. First off, Catalyst as we know it today will not exist in five years, but it will have reached its end point. The end point of Catalyst is not to be a developer technology. It is to get the base frameworks of the Mac and iOS to be completely consistent. And if they can get the system folder on the Mac and the system folder on iOS to be completely consistent, Catalyst has no reason to exist because they are already the same platform. It's fundamentally as if they had merged the operating systems, but then the UI framework displays a completely different form factor UI on top of that. Kind of like they do with tvOS, to be honest. And to be honest, that's what they already say. If you watch the Catalyst session on WDC, they say, we have already kind of the low level that is like Darwin slash OS ten that is shared. Yes. Now we have a kind of a medium layer that is kind of different. Some of it is the same, like foundation is somewhat the same foundation, but not the same foundation, like UI kit, app kit, like some of the new frameworks. And then that's what I say, like we brought some of those frameworks on top of the Mac. Literally that. Yeah, yeah. But I, I definitely think the long-term goal is to flatten out those inconsistencies where there is no layer anymore. It just becomes part of the operating system. True. I feel though that they would do that by bringing the iOS stuff and adapting the iOS stuff to the Mac. 
Oh, definitely. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm not contesting that. I don't really care in what direction it goes. I'm just okay, saying perfect. it's going to be flattened out and there's going to be a base foundation for both OSs that is going to be completely consistent and is going to remove the need for Catalyst as a technology. Okay, it's just no, okay. going to Glad be... You a, know. Yeah. Uh, so the next thing is Swift UI is just a modern UI framework that happens to enable cross-platform code sharing to avoid needing to learn three different UI frameworks to develop across Apple platforms like it is today with WatchKit, UIKit, and AppKit. But SwiftUI in itself is not a cross-platform play. Catalyst is the cross-platform play, and SwiftUI is just kind of a victim of this narrative that comes along for the ride. And it, it might have been completely accidental that these two things lined up. Like Rumor says that it's kind of like timing, meaning that... Uh, I think was that was mentioned, and I'm not sure if it's in some Apple interview that went to the podcast, but I know a lot of people were saying Swift UI was no Swift UI was early by about a year. Catalyst was late by about a year. You're right, which and that's why they kind a of, lot like, of sense merged together. Yeah, but the problem is because this happened, the messaging got all muddied, and I think first of all, I think a lot of the people who are talking about Catalyst and Swift UI and the implications of both lack the technical background to actually know what they're talking about, unfortunately. Oh my goodness, that's uh, I'm not saying it's false, but wow. I'm not I'm not saying it to diss those people. I'm just saying like it's clearly the case because they are misunderstanding big parts of what both technologies are and they don't understand the nuance. And if it was better explained to them, they would explain the new they could repeat the nuances correctly as they're communicating it to normal people. But now there's just a lot of confusion again about what Catalyst is and what Swift UI is. And it, as a developer who kind of knows what's going on, it's kind of infuriating to be paying attention to those people. So that's kind of what I had to say about like the meta discussion of like how Catalyst and Swift UI play along together in this like greater narrative and how the narrative is being portrayed in the Apple commentary sphere. Um, I do have another point, though, which is something I thought during the keynote. And during the keynote, I was deeply concerned that the Mac Pro announcement was going to be immediately followed by a 25-minute segment about how great it is to run iPad apps on a Mac. <laughs> I can understand why, yes? Yes, if you're buying a fucking $6,000 computer that looks like... It has like this crazy horsepower. Don't you want to be doing something more ambitious with it than running an app your iPad can run with like a tenth the specs? I think Steve Jobs pretty much nailed his prediction of the post PC era in 2010. And this ties into it, I promise. Post PC devices are the primary computing platform for the majority of day to day tasks today. And Macs are increasingly relegated to being specialty tools for computationally intensive professional work, whether it's video editing, audio editing, uh, photo work, developers, machine learning, all that shit. I was, I was worried you were about to forget us, but that's okay. No, no, no. We're still in there. We're just like number three on the list according to the Mac Pro specs. <laughs> to me, it's clear that since Macs are becoming specialty tools, they should be leaning into being the best of those specialty tools instead of trying to make Macs more attractive to iPad owners who are already satisfied with the iPad as a computing platform today. Because let's be honest, let's say the dreams of everybody who loves Catalyst happens, and this fall, 
all of your favorite iPad productivity apps are available on the Mac. Not going to happen, but yes. Definitely not going to happen, but let's say it does. Do you think for one second that anyone who is currently using their iPad as a primary computing device today is going to spend twice as much on a Mac for the great advantage that they can use a keyboard and a trackpad with it, and it's not convertible like the iPad Pro is with the smart keyboard. As much as I just like it, people use it that way, and that's fine. Who is Catalyst for? Like, the big gains that are to be done are either, like, lifestyle apps, like, cool, you can watch Major League Baseball on the Mac now. Like, I'm sure people would love that, but it's not, like, a huge deal. Or productivity apps, which, let's be honest, a lot of the better productivity apps are already on the Mac today. And yes, you're going to be gaining certain iPad productivity apps, but the people who are interested in those apps are already using the iPad today. So what is there to be gained from Catalyst at all? Why is this here? Who does this benefit? And Hmm. as a specialty tool, I have a really, really hard time justifying the existence of Catalyst. So I I don't Hmm. expect you to necessarily have like a fully formed conclusion about this, but the more I think about it, like the more angry it makes me (laughs) like, you know what? I, you agree because now you're putting, you're making me, making me think a lot. I'm and putting you on the spot. <laughs> yes, that's okay. Because let me, I'll reply by saying what I think, not about what you said, but about the whole topic itself. Mm-hmm. I feel that if what is being true, that's been said about SwiftUI being shipped earlier than what has been expected to be, I feel that it helped ease the catalyst discussion because now everybody's focused not everybody but most of the devs are focused on like that new shit right and it's also yes it's correct that it is easy to assume that swift ui is for cross-platform application but it is not for cross-platform application and that i agree with you if you start listening about the the real discussion around it it is to have one framework that works on all platform but it is not optimized to be the low the common lowest denominator for all of these platforms it can be be super powerful optimized for the Mac and then also super optimized for iOS, but doesn't mean that this code is shared for both of them. It's just that you can use your knowledge of it shared. And that I feel that ten in ten years from now will be like that was a great move that Apple did that. With Catalyst, that's where I feel personally that is great for me because because I wouldn't learn AppKit and I want to build great app uh, Mac apps. And the burden of learning, I feel that the burden of learning AppKit kind of is so big that I'm like, I wouldn't do Electron, but at the same time, I wouldn't do AppKit. And now I have a solution for me to explore things there that makes it more viable for me as an iOS dev. So that's why I'm happy that it's there. Whether it will still be there in five years or not, I'm happy that it's there now. If it is not there in five years because there's something better, then there's going to have some, we're going to have something better and then we'll change again. And that's just, that is kind of the life realization that I have with programming. And I have a great note regarding this WWC announcement and the one from 2014, 14, excuse me, when they announced Swift. When they announced Swift, like I remember at school, everybody's like, and then we were talking to programmers during internship and something like, you know, you need to stay up to date. You learn, need to learn, love learning because everything changes all the time. 
And that's great. Everything's like, oh yeah, I love, I do a lot of iOS stuff on my, on the side because I love to learn. Start a new job in 2013. In 2014, I was like, hello people of the Apple platforms. Swift, you, Swift is now the new thing. And I was like, oh my fucking God. Because I've been on the market for a year and all the, the time I put to learn Objective C was like, kind of like, I, this why I was part of the people I was like, oh my fucking God, Objective C is dead. <laughs> like, it was literally those people. That was, that the main reason why I was freaking out. It's okay. You'll always have web objects to do True. Objective C in. Yes. But what I've started to realize is, and what I've started to realize, and also people at help uh, were kind of like the way they were talking about the subject and everything. Like we realized, like yes, we could be the the beating edge people, but there is purposes. I'm saying, like no, we see that Swift will be writing Swift in like three or four years, like all the time, and we will slowly, surely, like retire all of our OGC code base, not by rewriting it, but just like in five years from now, like its percentage will have will shrink compared to what it is right now. And that's what I learned is like, I, that's what also I reflected on this year. I, if I would have put like 2014 Luco in 2019 Luco's shoes, he would have freaked out seeing UI, Swift UI because like, what the fuck did I do with all my learning of like UI kit? And then that's what you start to realize that some tech, yes, like what I've realized is I shouldn't be the nerd that is always on the bleeding edge because that is not me. That doesn't fit with like, I want to take my time to learn the thing. And then and then also realize that, you know what? By doing that, you realize what will stick and what won't stick. And that's why I'm, I mean, and that all of that is to say is I feel that Swift UI is going to something that is going to stick in five years for sure. Catalyst, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But I feel that what we have here is good enough for me to start learning it. And you know what? I don't need to learn it too much because it's UI Git more or less. Just what I need to learn is how to build great Mac apps. And I feel that there's a lot of people like me that by getting Catalyst today in 2019, even if it goes away in 2022 or 2023, four, five, uh, 2024, let's say five years, like if we're motivative enough right now, like if it's the click that tells us like, Oh, you should now start be talking to do about Mac apps. Like what do you should do about the Mac? I think that even if in five years there's a new tech that is easier for us to use, it is a major win for Apple at all. Because now there's more people that are starting to talk about the Mac than maybe a year or two ago. And if that's what happened and that was catalyst was the catalyst of that, if you see what I'm doing here, I feel that that it, Apple's goal there, if it is really their goal, will be that 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 will be that one check mark. It would be done. We'll have moved to something else. But the end goal will mean more people on the Mac for the purpose of the Mac, like you described. If we bring back the, the van versus car analogy, the truck versus car analogy, if Apple is trying to make sure that the truck people are here to stay and they should focus on the Mac, then the truck people should not focus elsewhere. They should also focus on the Mac if the Mac really wants to become the pickup truck in Steve Jobs' old analogy. And that's what I feel Catalyst is. Catalyst is to say, hey, by the way, truck people, the this Apple truck exists. Don't forget us. And we are helping you to make sure we don't forget. We don't, you don't forget us. And also that it is easier for you to come back to Mac, to bring it back to the Mac. I'm using a lot of analogies and uh, like a lot of reference, but it still helps my argument here. So that, I know it conflicts a bit with what we said, 
But that's before we started recording. That was kind of my opinion about it. Just the fact that the Mac is getting more apps via Catalyst and all of that stuff means that for some time it's going to stay more relevant and more exciting because there's going to be fresh new stuff. Whereas right now it's a very and some people appreciate it for this reason. It's a very stable platform where there's relatively little change. Every year at WWDC, there are not that many things, if anything at all, that is exciting for the Mac. It's just kind of like, ah, oh, okay. Uh, and then you upgrade and maybe something breaks and then you regret it a bit. But. Or you have to learn a Z- ZSH. Oh, God. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. That and uh, all of your scripting languages are gone. Yes. Uh, that's Hashtag homebrew. Yes. RIP homebrew. It's not RIP. You'll need you'll need it to install all of those. Yeah, but Homebrew is a Ruby script. Oh, that's true. I forgot about that. Ah, uh-huh. uh-huh. forgot How about that. How do you that. bootstrap the, <laughs> the Homebrew? Oopsie, oopsie. Okay. But uh, I think somebody's figured something out. But yeah, um, I guess a package or something, probably. But yeah, you're keeping the Mac relevant to a certain degree. But are you keeping it relevant in the way that the Mac should be staying relevant? Like. To me, you should be really giving power users what they want because that's all you're left with. And you know what? That's what all of your opinion that you brought today that I was surprised to, I was surprised that it was not what I was expecting. So yes, it was really not exciting. And that's right now, that's what I can tell you because I don't know. And that's what you brought up into me. It's like saying, is that the right thing? I'm like, is that, is that what truck people want? I'm like, oh, that is a good point though. Like, yeah. is like because I do feel that that the small edition I have is I do feel that we might relive what we've seen with the watch in 2015, and that's why I used this example earlier in the episode is because I do feel that Catalyst will grow through that phase. What I'm worried is whether it will kind of kill it like what happened with Watchkin, because like nobody like in the past few let's say a year or two years like with WatchOS three and four five yes four uh, four and five that's where they brought big a lot of big features to make sure that oh people come back like make sure come back no no no. We, we're investing in it and i hope that that's what will happen like in 18 months 24 months two years three years that maybe not like let's say in uh, wdbc 2020 and we'll see maybe bug feature or maybe being more like mac like apis through ui kit but in 2021 i want to make sure like like this like um this uh Unification of framework. I want it to go through again. I, I want to make sure that it happens because if that it doesn't happen, then I'll be like, what was it really used for? If it was not to bring power tools back to the Mac, if people are not focusing too much on the Mac and we're trying to uh, go to bring those tools to iOS. That's kind of right now my main worry. And, and we joked about it, but it's kind of true that like this is also informed by the background well i didn't know this while i was watching the keynote and i was thinking it in my head but like the fact that the bash shell is going away okay that's negligible but um (laughs) the scripting languages are going away the mac is becoming more and more like an appliance like an ios device where you have less and less control over it especially with the read-only system partition like all of these changes are fundamentally poking at the Mac's distinct identity amongst the Apple product line and making it more uniform with the other platforms. And it doesn't seem like there's anyone asking the question, is this what our increasingly pro audience wants? 
And I think like there's been a lot of tension, like pretty much around the same time as the uh, latest Mac Pro, which is actually kind of funny uh, because the timing lined up. But it, sort of around that time when Apple kept tightening and tightening and tightening the screws on the Mac. And then there was like this change where they were like, oh, shit, we need to cater to the pro market because they're all leaving us. And that happened on the hardware front, but I'm not sure it happened on the software front. And now like this weird mismatch is throwing me off significantly. Yeah, I wonder if we haven't seen that play yet on the software. I don't know. Uh, we're going to have to see. I mean, like, there's the expansion card utility for the new Mac, Mac Pro. I don't know <laughs> if you saw that. That That's dope as hell, but it's the, not enough to win me the... over. It's the utility for the new Mac Pro that lets you decide how to allocate the bandwidth to the d- different PCI Express buses. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I've seen that because people... But I was wondering what was that the same. It was also giving you warnings like, oh, this card is not in the right slot for its optimal usage. It moved it to that yeah. slot. so it... We need more shit like that in the Mac. Yeah, yeah, but you just for that for that to happen, you need the uh, six thousand US dollars in September or in this fall. Fine, then instead of using the expansion card app that I really want to use, I'll use the news app, which is a great application that everybody should use, and definitely not a shitty marzipan app. Actually, that that's another <laughs> thing I do want to point out: <laughs> the Craig Federighi thing. What the hell is that? Like when he went out to the media and said like, oh, oh it's not because the technology the is yes. bad. It's because they made bad design choices throwing the fucking design team under the bus. You know what? This reminds me. So I heard I heard that some people at are saying that. Uh, so it's a small tangent, but there is a new limitation that they are going to add in April 2020. That they said, oh, you need to support like... Uh, launch storyboard in iOS app so that you don't have a that people don't s- no longer see like letterbox app because they don't support a new screen size and all that stuff but they also said that you should support multitasking yes and they were really exp- like really direct and then let's say that i heard between benches that people at apple are saying oh no it was not clearly communicated you misunderstood us blah 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 but they didn't give us details and it feels to me that kind of what you just described is a bit of that's like, oh, yeah, no, no, that's not what we meant. Like, we love our designers, but they, it's not the technology. You should, and don't blame the designers, but blame the designers. It's kind of a <laughs> bit of that. You misunderstood us when we say that it's not the technology, but the design decision. We have good designers, but they might have not made the best decision yet today. It's so weird. But it was, yes. So all of this is a bit weird. <laughs> yes, I was expecting this episode to be big, and it was. Um, I feel that we will revisit this topic. The more we learn about it, uh, I'm sure it's six months when Swift UI and Catalyst is out for real that we will revisit that for sure. We've learned so much. I'm sure like some of the stuff we're discussing in Swift UI will have evolved because already after three betas, there's so much stuff that evolved in it already. So I'm eager to see what people will do with it and what like hopefully, and that sounds bad, but Hopefully, in six months to a year, we will discuss some of the Medium blogs saying, oh, we have went on Catalyst and then we went back to Swift UI because X and Y, the same way as like, we did React Native and now we're back on iOS Native stuff and here's why. If we have those blog posts, it will be interesting because I think we'll put some fuel on the fire and maybe we'll, uh, it will help us revisit some of what we've described today in the episode. Yeah, definitely. I'm very much looking forward to seeing what developers think of it after having used it for some time because there's a lot counting on this. 
Yeah, yeah. But uh, by the way, I'd like to mention before we close the show, uh, because I don't want the outro to be so long like last week, uh, last two weeks, but uh, I'm surprised yet again. Uh, I felt that it was supposed to be an inflammatory episode, but no, I, it was good. I'm uh, like. I have to figure out something for next week. We're really due for an inflammatory episode. You know what? I have, I know where, uh, we will have an inflammatory episode and that's going to be a good reminder for our listeners. In about a month now at this point, Yannick and I will review Final Fantasy VII. The, remember the section we're reviewing? The Midgar section. Yes. And that's a game we never played ever. So we will be playing it, uh, myself on the iOS port, uh, mostly because that's what I bought. Uh, Yannick, I think you bought the PS1 game itself. Yes, I'm playing it in Japanese on the PlayStation. See, and I feel that's where we will have inflammatory comments because Final Fantasy VII people will be like, Oh my God, Yannick said that. And Oh my God, Luco doesn't know about Final Fantasy this. And that's, I feel that this episode is coming. So far, I don't have anything negative to say about it. So I don't know. Okay. Oh my goodness, Yannick. I don't know what's So I really have to figure something out for next week. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm putting a lot of pressure on you, but that's okay. You, you, you not, you, there's no requirement for you to be inflammatory. I'll figure something out. That's it. It is. Okay. So if you want to listen, no, if I've had some gin. <laughs> If, if you, you do you want, want me to do the outro on my own? No, it's fine. If you want okay. to see the show notes for this episode, you can go to limitlesspossibility.net slash 116, or you can find all of our episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the podcast on Twitter. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can also find us individually. I'm Sakarina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Nikolivi at... Lucanoj, that's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And uh, if you didn't understand that, we have 115 other episodes where Yannick did say it correctly as to her end also. Or you can go to the website. See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.